episode of Act Root to Fruit. My name is Marcel Tassara, and uh, I'm on a quest to try and excavate the roots of the contextual behavioral sciences so that us uh, non-congenital behaviorists can know what we're doing. And today I am uh, thrilled to be uh, speaking with Greg Madden about behaviorism and whatever else comes up. Uh, so far, we've kind of started out getting, getting settled into the, the stance and what, what's unique about this, this uh, technology. <clears throat> and had a discussion with um, Franz de Waal about evolution and our uh, uh, most recent relatives. And uh, uh, today we're, we're getting going on the, this whole behaviorism topic, which is uh, a scary one. <laughs> what I, to, just to give you some some um, backstory, you know, the thing that I, I spoke with Joanne first, Joanne Steinwachs, and and yeah. one of the things that I was I kind of was thinking about was, you know, when when I started to learn ACT, I felt really good. It was it was you know just a communal experience, but to know what I'm really doing, I've had to go back and read the formulary of the medication, you know, and that's it's not as fun, you know. <laughs> What do you think about that? That's very true. It's uh, there's an awful lot of uh, pretty hardcore basic science, laboratory science. Awful lot of it is not written with a broad consumer in mind. Very technical yeah. language. Yeah. yeah. Even I struggle <laughs> to read it, even after yeah. doing it for this many years. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and so also a little bit of backstory. The first one of the first times I took Psych 101. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I, I wanted I wanted to make sure I got as much out of it as possible, so I took it a few times. And um, uh, the 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 folks who were teaching it were some some t- you know graduate students. They were they were very very hardcore behaviorists, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, they they spent more time kind of uh, dissing Freud than actually saying what he did, you know. And I was really <laughs> it really turned me off to behaviorists. Sure. Put a really bad taste in my mouth. I think in part because I was like, well, I'm, I'm attracted to this field because I want to be helpful. I want to be of service. How, you know, I don't know. It just didn't, just didn't add up. And so I, that, that held me back from really embracing what, what behaviorism has to offer. I failed to, to thoroughly introduce you before I ask my follow-up question to what you just said. So sure. Greg, Greg <laughs> uh, is, a, is a professor at Utah State University, and uh, you are a professor in the behavioral analysis program. That's correct. And uh, you study decision making, impulsivity, and um, you're doing some work on how to teach people to delay gratification. Yep, that's uh, correct. Health choices, and you've been uh, you've served as multiple from from editor in chief to associate editor of the Journal of Experimental Analysis of Behavior. That's correct. Um, and you are the editor in chief, or you were the editor in chief of a handbook, the APA Handbook of Behavioral Analysis. That's correct. So, um, so you're well steeped in this behavioral analytic world. I've been doing it for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is behavioral analysis? Uh, well, 
Well, that's a good one. Um, behavior analysis is, um, if you talk to a behavior analyst, they will say it's a natural scientific approach to the study of behavior. Okay. And, um, and I would agree with that. Um, I think that it, 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 behavior analysis is also the activity of the scientist who adheres to the philosophy of radical behaviorism okay. as well. Okay. And so um, I think the early origins of radical behaviorism was really Watson's uh, 1913 manifesto mm -hmm. paper. I had cause recently uh, to go back and read that 1913 paper. And he, mm -hmm. interestingly, he doesn't reject um, the study of private events, of, of mental events and, and like that, um, which he's oftentimes accused of. Um, instead, he, he, he just says, why don't we put this on hold for a while? Okay. You know, we just don't know enough to huh. be studying this. Yeah. And so why don't we focus on objective behavior um, and study that for several decades, perhaps, hmm. and see if it is that we can learn something about private behavior. And, and you know, his, his focus on feelings in the uh, notorious uh, Little Albert study, I mean, there you go. It's all about private behavior. It's mm -hmm. just the, uh, one of the, the public accompaniments of the fear response. Yeah. So what made his, his approach to behaviorism radical? Um, yeah, I think it, it is that the, the radical shift at that time was that everybody, um, or the main thing that had been happening in psychology is the focus was from behavior directed toward internal life. And so behavior was just studied um, as a, a window through which we could deduce things about mental life and consciousness. People were really interested in consciousness. People were really interested in animal consciousness at the time. And so behavior was studied really just as, you know, this is the only way we can get to what we're really interested in. What we're really interested in is mental life and consciousness. And again, okay. Watson, I think, is saying, yeah, that's all cool stuff, man, but <laughs> we're just not going to be able to do it mm -hmm. using the, the, the tools that we have available at this time. And, and where, where do you see the field now? Oh, it's much different now. Yeah, considerably different now. I mean, uh, I think the shift, you know, years later when we could get to a position where we could begin to have this conversation about, well, maybe we should reintroduce the subjective. Maybe we should um, reintroduce private events, thinking, feelings, et cetera, into a science of behavior. Then you get into the sort of the other um, aspect of radical behaviorism, and that's the aspect that's more associated with uh, B.F. Skinner. And in that aspect, you know, he reintroduces the idea, yeah, we really ought to be studying feelings and emotions and, uh, and cognition as well, but we should be regarding these as behavioral phenomena. Um, and, and so there, um, he's saying it's okay to to study these kinds of things again they're really interesting and obviously we all know these are really interesting phenomena but what he's objecting to at his time was not so much that what people were doing was using behavior to study what's happening inside but he was more objecting it seems to me to 
studying behavior and then looking for things inside as the explanation of what's happening on the outside. So the, the causal arrow kind of goes from inside to outside, and that was the part that uh, Skinner was objecting to. So he's objecting to, um, yeah, cognitive phenomena as mm -hmm. the explanation of behavior. Yeah, I think, you know, what Skinner's um, saying is, look, um, in fact, I looked up the other day one of his famous quote on uh, um, radical behaviorism. He said, the philosophy, it's the philosophy of a science of behavior treated as a subject matter in its own right, apart from internal explanations, mental or physiological. Hmm. And so what I think he's pointing to there is we should be trying to understand behavior. It's a really interesting subject matter um, in its own right. And when we're looking for the, the explanations of behavior, we should be looking at the level of behavior, not at some uh, internal explanations. Um, so he has two categories of the internal explanations, the mental and the physiological. Um, the phys in that one, I mean, Skinner was not really um, a opponent to physiological explanations of behavior. He just thought that they were incomplete. Okay. And he oftentimes said that to really to have a complete science of behavior, we have to understand the physiology of the individual and how it interacts with behavior and the environment to give us a, a complete picture. Okay. And then the mental part, I think he's really objecting to a particular kind of explanation, and it's the mentalistic kinds of explanations, the folk psychology kinds of explanations. Mm -hmm. And those are the kinds of explanations that, you know, I deal with on a regular basis because I teach undergraduates on a regular basis. Yeah. And unlike, you know, a, a student who's taking an introductory course in physics, they don't have a folk um, physics <laughs> that they yeah, walk into the true. class with have a very strong sense that they already understand this phenomenon that this you know professor is now going to talk to me about his crazy theories instead they just assume that the physicists have it all down because well, they put them in on the moon <laughs> by mm -hmm. golly and so they must have mm -hmm. uh, some kinds of explanations down uh, correctly here and so yeah I have to um, work against this idea of there are mental um, causes of the behavior that you engage in. And so I borrow, I think I read this years ago when Steve Hayes talked about this, uh, one of his um, arguments against these kinds of mentalistic explanations of behavior is that, um, you know, when you uh, point to these mental events as causal, you don't realize that this mental event um, is actually, it's the activity of an organism, and therefore it's classified as behavior. Hmm. And so you've just explained behavior A by pointing to behavior B, oh. but you never bother to ask the question, what caused behavior B? Uh -huh. Was it behavior C? Well, then what caused behavior C? And hmm. then it's just this infinite regress where you get no, no closer to being able to actually explain the behavior. Yeah. And likewise, when the other one that's very common among students is that they believe that, um, that the mental event that causes their behavior is their choice. 
Mm. And so they regard choice as a different kind of phenomena when from a behavioral perspective, choice is behavior. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, in the upcoming textbook that I'm working on, which is nearly done that I mentioned briefly before yeah. we went intro, on air here. In, intro to Yeah, Introduction to Behavior Analysis. Mm -hmm. um, there's an entire chapter devoted to the study of choice. It's a, it's a very advanced quantitative science at this point. And so pointing to choice as the real cause of my overt behaviors just makes absolutely no sense because once again, you've tried to explain behavior A mm -hmm. by pointing to behavior B, which is the choice behavior. But what caused the choice? Yeah. So. Fascinating. And, and it uh, makes me just kind of think about the semantics that we get tripped up on a lot. Mm -hmm. you know? The question I have in relationship to this is, you know, a lot of us who are enamored with ACT, I think uh, mindfulness is a hot topic right now. And, uh, and uh, also just the techniques that are, that, that are uh, taught in ACT are really attractive. <clears throat> of these, I'm wondering what, what's important do you think for, for those of us who are coming to, to act without much of a behavioral background, what's important about behavioral analysis that, that, that we should know? And, and, you know, not that you're going to teach us all that in this answer, but maybe, <laughs> you know, point, point, help point, please. Yeah. Um, I, it's hard to say. <laughs> it's just it's a such a massive field. Yeah. 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 I think that, I mean, if I, uh, let's, what are the tools that um, that clinicians use in their practice that um, that yeah. seem behavioral? So, like exposure mm -hmm. components mm -hmm. of therapy. So, from that perspective, you know, exposure components of therapy is really a Pavlovian technique. Mm -hmm. And so, um, if it is that the individual therapist doesn't really understand Pavlovian conditioning other than I know it has something to do with Pavlov's dog, then there's probably a pretty good chance you're not going to be as effective as you could be mm -hmm. if you really understood Pavlovian conditioning. And generally speaking, I find that um, most people I talk to, um, even within behavior analysis, frankly, don't really understand Pavlovian conditioning all that well. Um, within behavior analysis, um, it's not, because Skinner was so operant focused, mm -hmm. um, most behavior analysts spend most of their time studying operant conditioning processes. Yeah. Um, and most uh, people who work in applied behavior analysis, um, they really work with operant behavior. And so that's kind of what they know, and they know operant conditioning techniques. To understand some of the terminology and mm -hmm. uh, around behavioral analysis, uh, sure. one of the words that I'd I'd like to hear you talk about within this, if if possible, is uh, contingencies. Sure. Yeah, contingencies are fairly simple idea. Um, it's it's uh, the idea that if you engage in the behavior, this is the simplest contingency. Okay. If if you engage in the behavior, then there will be a consequence. So if okay. we stick with reinforcers, mm -hmm. if you press this button, then you will receive five cents. If you press the button more frequently, then I can say that I arranged this reinforcement contingency. They press the button more frequently than they did without the five cent reward. And because 
the rate of pressing the button went up, mm -hmm. we would classify the consequence as uh, a reinforcer. There are much more complicated contingencies than that. Mm -hmm. And so if I, there's a slightly more complicated one, if I make you press the button twice, now I have a fixed ratio two contingency in operation mm -hmm. on the button. I could do a time-based contingency. So the first button press after 30 seconds is the one that's reinforced. There's just lots of, you know, you can, you can come up with as many contingencies as you have an imagination mm -hmm. to create different contingencies. Furster and Skinner in their 1957 book called Schedules of Reinforcement, they should have called that book Contingencies of Reinforcement because okay. it just lays out every possible contingency of reinforcement that they could think of at that time. Mm -hmm. And they outlined all the orderly patterns of behavior that they observed in non-humans when they laid those or put those contingencies in place. Mm -hmm. is, that so, still yeah. is that still relevant today, that book? Would you send people there? Um, no, definitely no. not. Okay. <laughs> I mean, let me let me yeah, preface that. If, if they have insomnia, maybe if then. That's it. I mean, yeah. it's the most boring book you're ever gonna not read. I don't okay. know anybody who's ever read it because it wasn't written. <laughs> it wasn't written in a way that anybody would want to read. It's more of a reference book. Where do you send your students to to immerse themselves in this contingency talk? Um, well, right now, the students who are in my intro class, I give them preprints of the textbook that I'm working okay. on. And okay. so it's, you know, we talk about contingencies in the very first chapter where we talk about reinforcement, because in order to talk about reinforcement, you really have to talk about mm -hmm. a contingency mm -hmm. between behavior and the reinforcing consequence. And then eventually, once they understand reinforcement and the different sorts of reinforcers that uh, can exist, primary reinforcers, condition reinforcers, negative reinforcers. Then we're in a position where we can start talking about more complex contingencies of reinforcement. And mm -hmm. then we talk about some of the, the very basic, but more complex contingencies of reinforcement. One of the interesting things that I have always loved about contingencies of reinforcement is, as I said before, it's, they can be, it's not like there's a set of contingencies of reinforcement there. They can be made up on the spot. And so like, for example, the contingency of reinforcement with uh, drug self-administration. So this is research where the animal presses a lever if they want to obtain a drug reinforcer. If they do, then they consume drugs, much like humans do. Mm -hmm. so, about, are you talking about Facebook? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be a variable ratio of <laughs> reinforcement, the most addictive of them all. Wow. You think they have some behaviorists working for them? I'm pretty sure. That <laughs> if you want to. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know any of them, but. Uh, mm -hmm. Would you liken it to, to learning a new language? Kind of. Oh, learning about behavior analysis? Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, there is a technical language that you do have to pick up um, along the way mm -hmm. in order for you to read the, the literature of behavior analysis. Yeah, you're going to have to learn the, uh, you know, the core language, the core uh, technological language, language of behavior analysis. It is a, an impediment to people trying to, to, to go in and, and learn a little bit, um, to be sure. 
and yeah, again, not to plug a book that doesn't exist yet, but yeah. uh, too much anyways. But yeah, that's one of the things we try to do in this book is to try to, you know, speak to an audience that doesn't know anything about behavior analysis, but is mm -hmm. interested in behavior because behavior, frankly, is really an interesting subject matter in its own right. Yeah. It's the radical behaviorist phraseology. I mean, think about the the cause of death in the United States and worldwide, and it, the number one killers in the U.S. are are cigarette smoking and obesity and inactivity. And when you think about the problems of the world, and I mean, they all almost boil down to behavior. Global mm. warming—that's behavior. Yeah. You want to fix that? You got to get people to change their behavior. You need a, technology of behavior change to yeah. to do that. And so, focusing on behavior is. Uh, it should be incredibly relevant um, yeah. these days. Yeah, I'm with you. So on, and on that note, focusing on behavior, yeah. I'm wondering if, if we could do a little bit of a behavior analysis example. Sure. I wonder if you could just talk about like something as innocuous as deciding to be on this podcast or what shirt, why you chose that shirt this morning and you could kind of, <laughs> you know, look at it through what a behavior analytic. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's the whole reason you're on. Mike, Mike Tuig has been concerned about this shirt for a while, and he's been wanting me to have this intervention with you. <laughs> you know, so, something, to, something kind of innocuous, potentially, just uh -huh. to, to kind of help myself and the listeners understand what it means to do kind of an analysis of a behavior. Mm, okay. Um, well, let's let's choose something more significant than the shirt. Okay. <laughs> so one of the things that I've tried to do, as I especially, you know, I try to stay in fairly good shape, mm -hmm. but I try to do it in a way that I don't have to sweat. Okay. <laughs> because I recognize that if I have to sweat, um, I'm going to be less likely to want to exercise again because it means I need to take a second shower mm -hmm. for the day. Mm -hmm. So when I first started trying to get into shape years and years ago, I um, did a lot of riding of my bike and I would ride my bike to work and, and that all seemed good. But, but I noticed that um, I didn't do it as much on hot days because I didn't want to have to take a second shower. Okay. So, um, and so I've just looked for ways to um, increase the probability that I will engage in physical exercise, but do it in a way that I don't actually work up a sweat. Okay. Okay. So, um, so one way in which I have done this is that uh, I have this little app on my phone and um, it goes off every 40 minutes. So I now I have a salient stimulus. Okay. That signals to me that, uh, you know, it's basically, it's a reminder that you should engage in this behavior. And so it reconnects me with the goal that I every, have in Every mind. 40 minutes, you said. Every 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and then what I do is I get up from my desk, because um, there's research on this that shows that if you get up mm -hmm. from a sitting position for um, after about 40 minutes and do a little something, then it's much better for you. Yeah. And so. Yeah. I heard someone say recently that uh, sitting is the new smoking. That's right. That's exactly right. I love that. I love that saying. Yeah. So when that goes off and I make sure it's loud and annoying, mm -hmm. <laughs> then I get up and, um, and I've got a little exercise ball in my uh, office 
and I do a round of sit-ups or I have some weights in the room and I do one round of lifting weights or okay. when I was in my office at the university I would do three flights of stairs in the building just something simple mm. but it's it's nothing that I would ever work up a sweat okay. doing okay. and yet I'm able to maintain my core strength and mm -hmm. my, you know I'm not going to be a bodybuilder or anything like that with this obviously mm -hmm. But nor do I want to be. I just want to stay healthy as I get older and older. And then with the bike riding to work, it was producing too much sweating. And so I, um, you know, got rid of that and just walked to work at that point. And so I'm, I'm trying to find, so in this behavioral analysis, I'm trying to find ways to reduce the aversive consequences okay. of engaging in this behavior that I need to engage in. Okay. And so yeah. what is the main aversive? I don't like taking two showers a yeah. day. Yeah. I don't like the, the sweat like that and be uh -huh. stinky. And so and so I just figured out can I find behaviors that I can do that are short duration behaviors or not so you know, um, I'm not running or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, so according to my Fitbit, I average about forty miles of walking every week and mm -hmm. I do these exercises every 40 minutes in my office and so by reducing the aversiveness of a, a goal directed behavior that I really want to engage in I'm able to do it much more than I would had I tried it um, you know by working out at the gym running riding the bike things like that okay there's like there's a gap between what's being done in behavior analysis and what's being done in the therapy office and I'm just, I'm not understanding that gap. Yeah. So you, you detect that there is a gap. Yeah. I detect that there is a gap as well. Yeah. Um, but where would you, where would you like to see the gap close? Because when I look at what's going on in the act therapy world, mm -hmm. and I'm far from an expert, but I did take Mike Toots class. Okay, cool. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm impressed with the things that people are doing in the act therapy literature. Uh -huh. And so um, if they had a, a better understanding of behavioral contingencies, could they do it better? I think that's probably the case, but I don't know that I have enough expertise in act therapy to know where would it be useful to know more about reinforcement okay. contingencies okay if i had to point to one just to go back to the um, shaping and percentile schedules mm -hmm. i mean if it is that you are trying to gradually help an individual to acquire a new habit or get into the habit of doing something every day then then yeah i think knowing something about the habit formation literature knowing something about shaping Mm -hmm. Might be a useful set of school uh, skills to inter excuse me introduce into uh, the therapy and evaluate if in fact it is useful or not. Okay. Okay. Oh, so so you you could see the the extension of the of behavior analysis in the class and the, the in the act work that you you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean that's one example of. You know, just off the top of my head, that might be, might be useful. Okay. I'm sure um, if I had more time to think about it, I'm sure yeah. I could come up with yeah. more. But, you know, you know, Steve, he was a, 
I mean, he was schooled in all of this uh, behavior analysis stuff mm -hmm. from the start. Mm -hmm. And he was a major contributor to the behavior analysis literature as well. I mean, his work in uh, the area of human performances under schedules of reinforcement and changing contingencies of reinforcement, that stuff was super important um, in the time, but I think it was also super important in the development of, of ACT because I think what Steve saw the humans were doing in the laboratory conditions, which is to say they were following a bunch of rules that didn't mesh very well with the environments in which they were you know, trying to earn reinforcers. Mm -hmm. And yet they adhered to these rules religiously yeah. <laughs> and weren't sensitive to changing contingencies. I think that was a, uh, a real, had a real impact on Steve because he saw that in his therapy work yeah all the time yeah. you know these people show up they have these these rigid set of rules that limit their flexibility that uh, they won't deviate from the rules and they don't really see that they're rule following they're just taking it all so literally and so yeah i think that that probably played some role in the development of the directions that act therapy went yeah well yeah thank you for that that's that's really helpful to hear mm -hmm. For someone like myself, you've heard me talking about and get a sense of my understanding of behaviorism. Where, where, with what's available now, mm -hmm. it's published now. What, where do you send me to get? <laughs> where do you send me to get um, kind of better steeped in, in the behavioral analytic radical behavioral world? Um, yeah, I think I would look for an introductory textbook in okay. behavior analysis. Um, I listened to the podcast that you did with Joanne the other day. Yeah. And I enjoyed that. Thank and you. she she mentioned that um that somebody told her to read Catania's book. Yeah. Steve. Early on. Yeah. yeah. Steve told her that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um I love Charlie Catania, but that book is a real <laughs> difficult one to read. Um I have read it and I you know, I've considered it for my class, but I just don't want to do that to my introductory students because it's just, it's, it's hard. Yeah, it's just yeah. really a difficult book. And then she mentioned um, what I think the book that she was talking about was the uh, Principles of Everyday Behavior Analysis, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. was a book by L. Keith Miller. Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, the book is, has been out of print for quite a few years and it's okay. certainly a dated book. Mm -hmm. But if, if you could find it uh, as a used book on Amazon yeah. or someplace like this, um, it is a, a, a good place to start because it goes over the core principles mm -hmm. and it does it in a way that's very simple to follow. Um, and you can go through a chapter in about 20 minutes and there's like 24 chapters in the book. Okay. So it's, it's a pretty quick read. Oh. Um, and you'll understand it. Plus, there's tons. The book was just filled of, with uh, fill-in-the-blank questions okay. with answers at the back of the book so, to give yourself a assessment of whether you're understanding it or not. From there, I would look for a more contemporary um, book. And yeah, maybe my book will be ready. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Cause, yeah, because yeah, that book, is, it's, it's dated. Uh, yeah. For sure. There's a lot of yeah. things in there that are just not up to date. And there's no no coverage of Pavlovian conditioning at all in that textbook. But okay. again, I think that's a pretty important one for clinicians to understand Pavlovian right. conditioning well. 
and the understanding of Pavlovian conditioning really hasn't changed a lot over the last 30 years. So important to understand the most recent understandings of Pavlovian conditioning. Okay. Would you yeah. consider a subtitle for your book as uh, putting sexy back in behaviorism? <laughs> we certainly try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's almost, there's very little talk of the traditional areas of focus of behavior analysis, a little bit of talk about autism and development of disabilities, but uh -huh. that's not the typical stuff that excites the undergraduate right out of the box. Mm -hmm. And so what they want to know is why do I do these things and why do all my friends do these things? Mm -hmm. And so we talk about real world behavior, there's sections in there about, you know, terrorism and white nationalism and substance abuse and all kinds of things like that. that right you know, are real world problems that people are interested in solving. Yeah, beautiful. Who's uh, publishing that? Yeah, Wiley Blackwell. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I will, uh, well, as soon as that gets published, I'll add that to the, the show notes. Cool. Yeah. Sounds good. And um, yeah. really appreciate the discussion, Greg, and your time. Yeah, it was a good time. Yeah. I enjoyed, enjoyed it. I'm off to my next guide. All I right. Rush to the forest here of behaviorism. Good luck. Thank you. Have a good journey. Thank you. But I'm getting stronger. They take a piece of me. But I'm getting stronger. They take a piece of me. But I'm getting stronger They take a piece of me